This morning we have a reading from Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, the second chapter. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting and with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter making him an apostle to the circumcised also worked through me, sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that what they were doing was, was not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law. Because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. 
For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Matt first told me that he was uh, starting a series on Galatians and asked if I wanted to preach on it, I said yes, and then I somehow forgot and quickly reminded myself that um, Galatians can be um, difficult in more ways than one. Paul is particularly angry at this church, and he is um, eager to make his point. And sometimes that comes across in ways that can be a little confusing. Um, Sometimes it comes across as being, whoa, let's step back, Paul. (laughs) That was more intense than I was expecting. Um, And it's a lot about circumcision, and that just doesn't seem entirely like it matters to me personally. Um, But we charge ahead, and we believe that God's word is a word for us today, too. Um, The opening lines of Paul's letter to the Galatians are his blessing and his greeting, grace and and peace. Grace and peace. Peace. Yes, I've been noticing my need for peace more. It's a longing, but more than just a, oh, I wish this would happen. It's a deep need. Perhaps I've been noticing it because of the increasing amounts of information that come each day from the news from the email correspondence that doesn't stop even at two in the morning. Why are any of us awake writing emails at two in the morning? To the amount of television content that you can consume relatively quickly and easily. It's daily pressing in and it's much more than anyone can process. Perhaps this longing for peace is born out of fear Fear in the face of genuinely terrifying world conflict and local conflicts that seem insurmountable, positions that seem intractable. Perhaps this longing for peace is that daily reminder that conflict in our closest relationships is a necessary part of making peace with one another. So, in observing my need for peace, Brian and I made our way up to the Olympic Peninsula last weekend to explore Olympic National Park. We stayed at a lovely cottage by a pond. Our days were filled with the enjoyment of beautiful scenery, truly fresh air, and a deep sense of beauty and peace that you find in the stillness of nature. And yet, even though we tasted peace, it wasn't enough to satisfy the craving. Even in the middle of the forest, somehow the news and email, fear, and the challenges of relationships stay with you. The peace that we have in nature, or in listening to music, or 
even in ending a conflict after years of war, all of those whet our appetite for the kind of peace that we really need. For we often need to be reminded that our need for peace is deep. I think peace is at the center of this section of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Not simply the relational peace between factions, although that's certainly part of it. Paul is concerned that something is at stake about the message that he's proclaiming. So much so that he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders because he wants to make sure that he's not running in vain. And that good news of Jesus, the message he proclaims, is one of grace and peace. A summary of the gospel in two words, grace given so that we might be set free from the weighty chains of sin, from the gnarled and winding path leading to despair, and peace that comes from freedom, peace that pervades our relationships, our daily life, such that we can live as we were meant to and not as a half-self, peace so that we can live together as if we are one body working together. Does that sound like good news? It does to me. I can imagine that it did to the Galatians as well. Even though Galatia seems foreign, it's modern Turkey, I'm not sure that it's that far away in our imaginations. This letter is to a community, much like our own. And this community is finding itself struggling with its identity. What do they believe? Who will they follow? It's a newer community. And perhaps the euphoria of the newness of meeting together and sharing life has faded a bit with time. Now people are disagreeing. Others have come and talked about their experiences of the gospel, and each has different demands. And that's just the church life. The church in Galatia lives in a community under Roman occupation. And all of Rome at this point is concerned with peace. In the Roman world, peace is a goddess who brings an end to war and prosperity. It's a propaganda story begun by Augustus Caesar, who realized when he came to power that he needed to maintain the dominance of the Roman Empire by convincing them that they should not continue to be embroiled in civil war. This is the altar of peace. He created this in Rome and commissioned the writing of the Aeneid by Virgil as a way to tell the story of Rome to the world. And Rome is now the center of the Pax Romana, this peace, this world order that is Rome. And it came with it all sorts of civic religion. This is an altar where people would go and make sacrifice to Rome, to the goddess peace. The Pax Romana, this Roman peace, was an attempt to create a worldview that allowed Rome to maintain power. And it was effective for more than 200 years, which was unheard of, is unheard of in Roman uh, European history since. But I'm sure that despite a civic religion born of a desire for peace, we can see that that's not quite the peace we're longing for. It was a peace to maintain an unjust social order, a peace that oppressed the people in Galatia who had to deal with military occupation. 
some of whom were not Roman citizens and didn't enjoy the benefits of that empire. And so we find ourselves in this church hearing this letter read aloud, just as it was read aloud to us this morning. Someone has written to Paul, or maybe Paul has heard about these instructions that have been given to the church in Galatia when he was traveling. And so this letter is born of that kind of communication. Paul does not hide his disappointment. In fact, in the second or third paragraph, he curses the teachers twice. Um, He talks indirectly about the content of what they're teaching So it's hard to know exactly what was being said. But reading between the lines, we can piece together that some kind of demand has been made for Gentiles, who are, generally speaking, not circumcised, to be circumcised as a a requirement for being a part of the community of believers who are following Jesus, and perhaps also to follow some dietary laws. Paul's sharp and biting rebuke makes me think that this disagreement has struck a chord about something that is so central to the message that Paul is preaching and teaching, central to Paul's understanding of his own calling and his own identity, so much so that he wonders, is he running in vain? He tells us about his experience with this argument, this particular question about whether Gentiles need to be circumcised is not specific to this church in Galatia, He talks about the interactions he had in the synagogues in Jerusalem, how he met with the authorities there, how he met with Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, and and James, the brother of Jesus, in Jerusalem. It's the center of the movement. And they all agree together. Grace has been given to Gentiles who have faith in Jesus. They shouldn't be excluded from this community. Paul acknowledges that that wasn't the end of the conversation, but that it was a point of agreement. I want to pause in the story to highlight something that they do agree about, and that was never a point of contention in the church. And that's this statement, that they're united in their concern to remember the poor. I think we might think today of remembering as an activity that happens in our mind. We remember that we left the garage door open, or we remember the names of the presidents. But in this case, I think remembering is necessarily involves action. To remember the poor is to care for the poor. To recognize the poor, to say their names, to bring them into the community. This work of remembering the poor is what all of the leaders agree is central to the work of sharing the good news of Jesus. Unfortunately, that agreement fades into a story of rebuke. Peter, Cephas, has gone to Antioch, and at first he's sharing meals with everybody. And then all of a sudden, some men from James come, and Peter gets scared. And he stops doing that and says, no, I can't sit at the table with you. It's comforting to me to read that even Peter continued to struggle despite all that he knew and had experienced and despite his faith. 
He is the one who caved to peer pressure in the garden when the servant girl said, do you know Jesus? And he said, I do not. He has this proclivity to cave in to what other people around him are saying. And I find that comforting. The struggle and the temptation of sin is still present. But I digress. Paul goes to Peter. He calls out his hypocrisy. How can you compel a Gentile to live like a Jew if you aren't even living like a Jew all the time yourself? And then we come to this last section of the chapter, the meat of Paul's complaint and rebuke. How can we say that we're preaching good news of grace and peace and exclude believers from our community? Are we saying that our faith, that our faithfulness to Jesus as Lord, is of secondary importance to meeting some other requirements? As if first we might have faith, and then we need to meet these other requirements, and then we're in. Unfortunately, that starts to sound a little bit more familiar to me and some of the communities that I've been a part of and some of the things that I've said to myself, more familiar than conversations about circumcision or food laws. Like a dear friend remarked to me last night, sometimes as Christians, we're eager to offer grace first and then legalism comes after. We expect perfection from ourselves and each other that limits our willingness perhaps even our ability to receive grace from God and extend it to others. I want to say that we have to be really careful when we see ourselves in the story of making demands on others for them to participate in the community of Jesus followers. And here are two things that I think we need to watch out for. The first is we have to avoid this trap that... um, simplifies all of the Jewish faith into this idea that Jews simply thought that salvation came from meeting all of the requirements of the law. That's not the sum total of the Jewish faith. Paul and Peter and James and John are all Jews who believe in Jesus. The scriptures teach us in Isaiah that God is making a way of peace, that we're called to have faith in the God of Jacob the God of Abraham. Sometimes it's easy to just make them an other and say, we don't do that, we have faith. And I think this question about circumcision and keeping kosher is not something that I completely understand where Paul's going, but I think it's totally reasonable to think on the, other, on the Galatian side, well, why wouldn't we have people keep the law? That's been such an important part of God's promises Why would that suddenly go away? The second trap is to conclude that Paul is against all requirements or expectations for participation in the community. Indeed, participating in the community as Paul does when he rebukes Peter requires expectations and accountability and having faith in Jesus in the way that Paul is arguing for. So Paul certainly must believe that there are some expectations for this community because it can be misunderstood, miscommunicated, and misused. So it requires these kind of hard wrestlings. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul comes again to this question about unity. 
And here's what he says about explaining the unity of the church for both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. Grace and peace, the center of the gospel. We need the law to show us grace to show us our deep need for God to intervene, to help us understand this need that we have for peace, we need to have the law. But I think what Paul is trying to tell us is the law is not the way that we receive grace from God. It's a way of understanding the grace that we have. And instead, <clears throat> we receive grace through faith in Jesus through our faith in Jesus, through our faithfulness to Jesus, and through Jesus' faithfulness to us. That's how we know the grace of God, and that's how we have peace. Peace between us and God, peace between one another, and peace with the world that makes it possible for Jews and Gentiles to come together. So this Pax Romana that we were talking about, you know, it gets talked about as the good news of Caesar that the Pax Romana is here, it's keeping us safe. This is the propaganda that comes out of the imperial war machine. But this is the gospel that Paul is preaching, a gospel of peace that means that we need grace to confront our sin, that the deep sense of our own uh, brokenness as a community and as individuals needs Jesus to be a part of that. And that that makes it possible for us to be at peace with God and be at peace with one another. This is the work of God's Spirit in the Gospel. Yesterday, um, James Cohn passed away. James Cohn um, is the founder of Black Liberation Theology. And um, one of the beautiful things about social media is that it's often a way of connecting communities to remember people and to remember their work. Um, so yesterday as I was preparing this sermon and really trying to get my head around what it was that Paul was getting at, what, what's, the, what's the big deal? What's the problem here that we're trying to address? I read this um, quote by James Cohn in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I wanted to share it with you all. The real scandal of the gospel is this. Humanity's salvation is revealed in the cross of a condemned criminal Jesus. And humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. Faith that emerged out of the scandal of the cross is not a faith of intellectuals or elites of any sort. This is the faith of the abused and scandalized people, the losers and the down and out. 
this proclamation of peace of the gospel is a reminder that we need one another, that my salvation is not mine alone. I'm not individually saved and sort of put in a bubble to be shipped off to eternity at some point in time. Um, My salvation is a part of your salvation, and it's a part of the work of making peace, of bringing about God's justice in the world, and that any kind of faith that's empty of that kind of radical peacemaking is kind of missing it, is excluding people unnecessarily, um, isn't troubling us enough that we need to be about making that kind of peace in the world. Some of you um, have probably read Brian Stevenson's book about mass incarceration and his work on um, having folks removed from death row in Alabama who've been unjustly accused of their crimes with little evidence. Um, And he's been working on this memorial that opened on Thursday. It's called the Museum of Peace and Justice. And it's a memorial to um, those who were lynched in the South between the Civil War and today. And this is one of the exhibits when you, you walk underneath it You'll notice, um, I don't know if you can read this, but the names of counties are on the bottom of these pieces of wood. And up at the top are the people that were killed in those counties. Um, James Cone makes the connection between lynching and the cross. I can't help but think about the ways that we, we look at the cross and we imagine Jesus unjustly condemned. And this is such a powerful statement of injustice in our world. We need the peace of God to confront injustice, to make peace. We need this gospel that is radically inclusive, that demands faith in Jesus to bring us together. We need the work of the cross. We need to be crucified with Christ so that we live together in community without exclusion. I can't help but think, as I look at this image, as I think about any number of things in my own life, that sometimes it feels a bit like I'm running in vain. I understand kind of Paul's frustration and and sentiment in that image of you're running down the road only to realize that you're totally on the wrong trail and you have to run 10 miles back to find the trail that you should have been on in the first place. That sense of just disappointment and frustration with yourself. Um, I think that's sometimes how this work of being people of the faith, being people of faith in Jesus can feel. And so here are some things that I think are reminders in this text of the work that we need to be about. The first is care for the poor. That we need to be engaged in remembering the poor whatever that looks like in our city of Pasadena, in our individual lives, that the work of the church is proclaiming the good news of grace and peace, not only to people who have means, but to people especially that don't, and to bring them into the community. I think it means that we have to offer grace to ourselves and to one another, um, that we, sometimes it's important to be people that are keyed into rebuke, 
Um, but more often than not, I think we should lean into grace as we are trying to figure out what it means to work together. And we need to have grace uh, for those outside of us, to have the patience and the, the sense of purpose and call to reach out and have conversations that are difficult, to talk about the good news of Jesus in ways that may stretch us, may feel uncomfortable. And we need to wholeheartedly act and believe that God is making peace in our world and that we are a part of that, that we're a part of God's call for justice and righting um, what's wrong, or at least working towards it. This is not a gospel of exclusion. It's about having faith in and being faithful to Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we confess that this road of discipleship is narrow and it's difficult. God, we pray for courage and for endurance to walk along it. God, we pray for the grace to receive grace, to give grace freely, and to work for peace. As those who've been called and claimed by Jesus, let us hold fast to the work of the kingdom that we're called into. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.